This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and on today's show, Bibliophiles, lovers of dusty old volumes with cracked bindings and arcane subject matter, listen up. It's Rare Book Week next week in Melbourne and that means a chance to go down the rabbit hole of creaky first editions deep dive into Australia's literary history from Darwin's take on Darwin to Twain's wry commentary on his travels to the great southern land. That's all going to be happening uh, from next week and we will be having the program uh, director of the Melbourne uh, Rare Book Week coming in to chat with us later in the show. But very, very soon... uh, we're going to be talking uh, about a topic that um, that has a lot uh, to do with uh, the kind of discourse that's been going on in light of recent events and, and of course, uh, the Me Too movement. Um, the wonderful Claire Strawn is uh, coming in to talk about her young adult uh, book, which is called The Learning Curves of Vanessa Partridge. Uh, it's a lovely um, tale. It's told well, um, has all the elements that you expect of, of good YA writing, um, which is accessible and page-turning, but it very definitely covers issues around sex and consent. Um, you know, at the same time as a young woman is learning how to drive her own body and what it's like to kind of get comfortable in her own skin. There's a lot of things in this book um, I'd love to unpack. Uh, Claire's going to be in uh, very, very soon to be talking about all of that. Um, She and I are also both teaching writing um, at the same institution, so we'll be able to talk a little bit about the craft behind some of these things as well. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're on Backstory here on 3RRR. I'm uh, joined in the studio by the author of a wonderful new young adult book um, all about the young Vanessa Partridge who loves philosophy and Felix Mendelssohn and her brother's best mate, Dareth. Her parents have divorced, she hates her stepmom and uh, she's still getting comfortable in her own skin and she's about to get a crash course in all the ways her body will be seen by her and others. Sex, consent, body shaming and a good bit of class, race and sexuality thrown in there as well. Clestron, you've managed to touch on a lot in this extremely readable book, The Learning Curves of Vanessa Partridge. Do tell us all about it, Claire. <laughs> Hi, Mel, and thanks for having me. Um, today. Yes, Vanessa um, took on a life of her own, I'd have to say. And um, even though it feels like I've put a lot of sort of issues in there, they came out of her sort of experience of her body, of growing up, of um, my questions around consent and what does it look like um, and 
uh, particularly what does it look like if you've never done it before? So how do you how do you consent to something that you've never done? Absolutely, and you don't even know exactly what it is that you want and what you're doing yourself. Mm. Um, Claire, you know, you are, you know, both a writer yourself in many forms, non-fiction as well as fiction. Um, this, of, this novel is obviously aimed at a much younger audience, um, you know, perhaps teenagers or, you know, new teenagers even. Mm. Um, and you teach writing as well. So I'm really kind of intrigued by how you've sort of put yourself into the mindset of this young woman and the only thing that really occurs to me is reading it and really getting steeped in it is it feels you know talking about these issues feels very familiar um you know it doesn't matter what age you're at I think uh, as a woman in particular these are things that you've experienced and you've felt and as I was reading it I was thinking you know like there's been a great outpouring of grief uh, about Eurydice Dixon, about what happened to her, about what's happened to many women, both uh, in the supposed safety of their own homes and out on the street, uh, subject to these things from random strangers. But when you're kind of getting under the skin of this sort of stuff, what do you do to sort of, you know, get yourself into the mindset of being a young adult, I guess, versus, you know, a fully grown woman? Mm. I... I it is a, a YA book and I have a YA publisher and I love YA, <laughs> but I would have to say that um, I wrote this for me primarily and drew on not just my own experience, but, you know, the experience of uh, a lot of people I knew when I was young and conversations I've had with young people um, since I became old <laughs> and... I, I was kind of horrified to think that the same kind of feelings of um, helplessness and also confusion about uh, owing something as though uh, the uh, young women's bodies um, owe young men's bodies something um, and that if you uh, try to negotiate those spaces of consent that um, you're being difficult or um, unpleasant in some way mm. you know, and it's so hard to face that rejection. Yeah perhaps um, we have kind of set this book up a little bit perhaps tell us a little bit more about you know the journey that Vanessa's going on and um, how that sort of you know plays out. Well um, the, the book starts off um, with Vanessa in a position of, of privilege there are, she comes from a very privileged family she plays the cello she goes to a lovely school um, she has lots of things but her family is obviously quite dysfunctional and uh, they set off for their um, summer holiday and they go to Shearwater which is um, the holiday house quote unquote but it's actually this rather splendid um, event house uh, which I, I'd love to go to if it existed in the real world I'd have to say. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, she doesn't have it too bad. Does no, she? she doesn't have it Although too bad. Although she thinks she does. Yeah, so she's, you know, a self-involved teenager and um, or person. And she's interested in having a sexual experience. So she's got a massive crush on her brother's um, best friend. And she also feels the distance between her and her brother who still sees her as sort of a, a little girl and he's now 17 and he wants to distance himself from her. He's, they're both really quite angry with their parents. Um, her father is uh, involved with a younger woman 
Um, her mother is absent and she sort of reinvents herself. And I, f- I felt quite weird about it being a little bit of a Cinderella story because I'm not sure about that trope. But you Although kinda... you do make the reference, I think at one stage a character goes, Cinderella, I presume, yes. and it's like mm, <laughs> an incredibly creepy character, I might add. Yes, she is. Um, so she, she does sort of want to be seen as a woman by Dareth. And when she when she sort of starts to reveal that aspect of herself, she attracts other um, interest um, from a younger, a young man who's a lot, still a lot older than her, who's 19, she's 15, and from an older man who's a friend of her father's or a business partner of her father's. And, I, I yeah, things go a bit pear-shaped for her from there. Mm. Um I think you've really highlighted some of the things um, that really get preyed upon, I think, particularly with young women as they're sort of getting used to their bodies and, you know, their own sexuality, whatever that may be. Um, And it's sort of really interesting, you know, Vanessa's sort of, you know, starting to develop boobs and she's, you know, really, you know, trying to get comfortable with that. Um, And I think at one stage she sort of says, like, she felt like just pulling off her boobs and throwing them at this guy. And I just thought, I kind of get that. Um, but it's like it's one of those things where she, you know, she wants to be touched. She wants sex. She's, you know, she's really, you know, she's yearning for things. She, she's she got like all of the usual sort of, you know, sexual thoughts that a teenager would have. But then to have that sort of, I guess, you know, that jujitsu move that's done on you, I suppose, in those sexual early sexual encounters sometimes where, mm. you know, power is taken away from someone who's just learning what they want um, and being pushed too far and not knowing, you know, what they want in the first place and then being pushed beyond, you know, where they wanted to go without, you know, having the language to stop in that situation. How important do you think, and we were talking a little bit about this off air, how important do you think it is for, you know, people of every kind of gender and sexuality to really get involved in in this sort of conversation and and understanding through things like fiction? Mm. Uh, I think it's um, it's one of the great gifts of um, all art, I suppose, is to allow us to enter into experience, experience maybe outside of our immediate um, experience of life. So we can walk around, you know, the old saying, walk around in others' shoes um, and to imagine to imagine the questions sometimes is, is even... Um, a step in the right direction to imagine yourself in the other person's position, to imagine the spaces between what we think is um, uh, solid, you know, because from one perspective, sure, if a, if a girl does this, that means this, you know, from one perspective, but perhaps that's not as clear cut as we might think it is. So to have a look at those grey areas, mm-hmm. um, because... That there's been a lot of, um, you know, I think it's fantastic how consent has become a a, a subject of discussion, um, but there's still a lot of shame around sexual encounter, um, and you know, victim blaming, and you know, we've mm. we've sadly over and over again seen um, the toxic effects of that, and I do touch on that in the book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very to, to not only navigate an encounter, but then to be judged for something as well, which is outrageous. Yeah. But you do illustrate that very beautifully. And 
but at the same time, those um, uh, the what happens between two individuals in a sexual encounter is a really messy business, <laughs> you know. And so, to to feel that um, true consent can be anything but a deep empathy for the other person's experience, I think, is um, needs to be unpacked. I, I don't have the answers to it um, because, as you say, sometimes we don't know what is going on in our own bodies and especially when we're young, we do need sensitivity one to the other um, and to be... And to know it's okay to change your mind. Yeah. Um, if you've just joined us and you're wondering uh, who we're talking to and what we're talking about, you're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to the author Claire Strawn about her new book, uh, a young adult book called The Learning Curves of Vanessa Partridge. Uh, the discussion is um, largely in this book. Um, you know, it, look, and I just want to make it very clear. This, you know, like a lot of... It's a comedy. I, it is, a, it is a, a kind of humorous book. There's a lot to enjoy in here. Um, it does what, a, you know, a good book should do, which is carry you along with the story. You're getting involved in Vanessa in her kind of love triangles in, you know, all the stuff that's going on. But within that, there are really serious issues that, you know, I guess throughout um, our lives uh, as women, as people... Uh, we have to address, um, you know, and these issues around sex and consent are very central to that. There are also other things that go on in this book that, that are worth talking about, but I do um, want to want to talk again about this notion of of empathy for the other, which, again, you know, there are studies to suggest that reading, uh, you know, creates a sense of empathy. And I guess the mechanism through which it does that is the is this kind of harnessing of our vast imagination, our ability to put ourselves in another's shoes, um, to walk around as them, to really get what it might be like to be them. Um, and I think we can do this with all sorts of things, you know, reading books that have characters who are of another gender, another sexuality, another race, uh, another kind of socioeconomic group, uh, all sorts of things like that can really help us to further understanding. Um, but I do want to talk about elements here in this book um, that you've also managed to get in their class and race and how important was it for you to kind of wind these things into a an otherwise quite sort of, you know, um, very kind of young adult, um, interesting page-flicking read. Um, thank you. Um, I suppose I started, when I first started thinking about writing another book for Alan and Unwin um, after Cracked, um, one of the things I had to consider is, you know, my privilege and does the world need to hear from me <laughs> and, you know, uh, how can I how can I write in a way that isn't just about the bubble? And um, so it was important. Sorry, I keep touching the things I shouldn't. Um, so it was important to um, think carefully about uh, all of those issues. And cl cl really, at, at bottom, um, the book is about colonisation. So it's colonisation of the land, colonisation of women's bodies, um, by the male gaze, colonisation of our um, experience of being human by capitalism gone wild, so by greed. Um, and I think we are all to some degree colonised by those things, particularly in this country. Mm. And so they all felt like they're part of 
our everyday life. Yeah. Um, so it was important to bring them in. And that's very much what you're doing with this book is that you're winding that into the narrative. I want to talk a little bit, bit about that because I think the craft of writing um, is often taken for granted mm. that people sort of read a book and they, you know, they and the best books, you are just simply getting involved in the characters. There's a lot more discussion about, you know, the politics of, of literature and the responsibility of authors. And I think in young adult literature particularly, we see authors take responsibility for those sorts of things. But there's also the real importance of narrative there. So how do you make sure that you're sort of creating a really interesting, believable narrative structure while sort of winding in all these other bigger ideas? Yeah, it's, um, well, I, um, I'm a, a character-driven writer, so the characters are come, come first. But I did make a conscious decision with this book, which I didn't really have with, the, with Cracked, to have a plot. <laughs> like I, you know, I just, I thought I want to have a plot and I want to see if I can pull that off. And I think having a goal, um, having a sort of series of outcomes that you're hoping to aim for, it does streamline the writing process. And at the same time, the map is never the territory. So the characters are always going to reveal themselves and take you in directions you didn't expect to go. Um, but I was, I think plotting, uh, I'm, is not my natural state, but I've, I've come to appreciate it as a, as a writer and also as a teacher of how, uh, thinking about how the story hangs together as a whole, um, and how it grows out of the characters, um, is, is, is like a way in. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I think um, I think if you're just, you know, because you do have fleshed out characters here, particularly I, I think the young people are, are the most fleshed out. And I thought that that was sort of an interesting approach as well, because it is very, very much in Vanessa's perspective. Mm. And so as a result, the people that are real to her are really her, you know, like the other kind of kids that she knows, uh, they're really the most fleshed out characters. You do get that sort of unreliable narrator's view of like the older people in the cast of characters, which I, th- I think is quite well done because they don't really get to be very evolved in the same way, which is pretty much how young people <laughs> kind of look at the world. But, yeah. um, but when you're sort of doing that, when you're creating uh, that plot. Are there any sort of tips, I guess, that you have for writers to sort of pull, pulling all that sort of stuff together? Um, I, I think having a sense of what it is that you're trying to say um, as an as an end goal, so that everything, so that becomes then a controlling idea, or um, con- not controlling in a bad way, um, or, a, or a central drama that you're trying to um, bring to birth. Um, that that can help. Um, push the narrative in the direction that you want to go in but also I think it's about actually believing in new characters because what we're trying to do is create holographic or hologramic I'm not sure which um, realities inside somebody Mm. else's imagination like 3D worlds Um, so you want to take that seriously I think Um, and and do your best to make them real characters. So even though Vanessa sees the adults sort of at arm's length because that's not her immediate concern, I'd like to think that if you took them out and wrote a book about any of those characters that they would also be, you know, fully fleshed out um, people, mm-hmm. um, which I, I might 
<laughs> Give them I'm, a spin-off book. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> so I'm, they get to have their own view. That would actually be quite a good companion piece, I think, to, to giving, you know, maybe a teenager empathy with, yeah, <laughs> with the parents' perspective. Yeah. Although, you know, some of the adults in this book definitely could use a bit of extra they're, work. They're pretty damaged, some of they're, them. They're pretty damaged. Yeah. Um, look, uh, is it, Claire, I would love to, to talk to you more about this book, but we are running out of time. Um, this book is obviously freely available. I think one of the things I'd, I'd like to to leave us with is this thought that perhaps, you know, through reading Vanessa's story and, you know, kind of enjoying being with her and the humour in the book as well, that maybe young women and, in fact, young men understand the importance of consent and maybe, you know, another person reading this who perhaps finds themselves in a position that Vanessa does feels empowered to actually say something and say no or stop or change her mind in that scenario. Is there anything that you want to mention about this book, um, Claire? Um, I've had, uh, anecdotally, I've had um, some ex- some uh, responses from um, women, uh, not, not young women necessarily, but older women who've read the book and f- felt... Uh, their own experience validated Mm. and I think that's made me feel like whatever else happens with the book it's it's well worth having written it Um, and I I, I'd like to think it's not just for for women or girls that it's for everybody and I and I did write it with I'd never kind of pulled back on the language or the themes at all in terms of it being sort of YA um, I think YA books are really interesting ways of flying under the radar in some way. Absolutely. So, I, I think yeah. uh, you can get away with less sometimes with YA people. Uh, young I, people are quite honest. I'm at, um, I'm at the VCA at the moment doing a master's in writing for performance and I am actually working on a, a TV pilot for <laughs> Vanessa. Wonderful. <laughs> so oh. we can get flesh out all of those <laughs> subplots and those other characters. So... I really hope we do see more of her soon. Uh, Claire Storm, thank you so much. For thank you so much for having me, Mel. You're on 3RRR with Backstory. And um, can I just recommend that if you have a young person in your life, young girl, particularly a young boy, that you consider buying a book like this for them? I think it's super important um, that, you know, books that have protagonists are uh, that are women, people of colour or um, people with a different experience of life, whatever that may be, it's super important to get um, to get those young people reading that. Uh, we'll give them that sense of someone else's life. Uh, we'll be talking about Melbourne Rare Book Week after this. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. That's the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. And there's probably no better topic for a show for bibliophiles, those people who love books, than discussing uh, Melbourne's Rare Book Week, which is uh, about to um, come upon us on, I believe, the 29th. And I'm very lucky to have the program director join us today. Chris Brown is here in the Triple R studio. Chris, welcome to Backstory. Thank you very much, Mel. It's a pleasure to be here. Might even put you on microphone, see if okay. we can try that. <laughs> okay, thanks, Mel. It's a great pleasure to be here with you today. Now, I, I do want to, I think everyone kind of understands the very visceral pleasure of, uh, of being near those kind of traditional books as we, we know them, the papery beasts, those kind of hard covers. And I've been, I remember um, when I was 
you know, in my teens, uh, I went to the State Library to look at a kind of early edition book, I think from maybe even the, the 1600s, and I had to wear gloves. I could only borrow it for an hour at a time. It was one of those incredibly sort of special moments when, you know, a book is was treated with reverence because it was a rare and beautiful object. Um, and look, I, I love my books in a very, you know, quite brutal way. Sometimes they're, they're covered in stains and they're covered in kind of dog ears and whatnot. But talk to us about, you know, what kinds of books people are my, likely to encounter throughout this sort of experience and, and why it is that you're having this event in the first place. Okay, well, thanks. Yes, those of us who love books do love them as objects and as repositories of knowledge and of pleasure and uh, of things to admire and love and respect and cherish, but also, very importantly, to preserve. And as you say, old books are uh, important to us and they hold our cultural heritage and give us the record of the story of our society. So Melbourne Rare Book Week, this is the seventh one that we've held. It's uh, an event which celebrates the book uh, and the printed word and printed ephemera and pretty much anything you can put onto paper other than fish and chips. It's, uh, It's a collaboration between a group of us who are enthusiastic about books and all of the institutions across Melbourne who have significant holdings and are interested in the book. And we try to do three things, really, during Rare Book Week. We try to open up those collections to the public at large so they can see and share the heritage, the fantastically rich heritage that we have here in Melbourne. So you can go into the State Library, have a tour of some of their holdings. We are very uh, aware that it's school holidays when Rare Book Week is on, so we're running a series at the State Library of children-focused workshops. You can make your own pop-up book out of paper. Uh, We open up things like the wonderful Supreme Court Library. Most uh, people in Melbourne have never been into the Supreme Court Library, which has been described by many people as the most beautiful room in Melbourne. Wow. It's a, it's a staggering place if you've never been there. And every year we put on something there where three legal luminaries, we call them, talk about how important books are to them. We generally have a barrister, a solicitor and a judge. And they tell their own personal story through books and it's a wonderful event to go to. This year is a particularly important year because it's the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And it's also the 200th anniversary of the birth of Emily Bronte, who wrote Wuthering Heights, the only book she wrote. In fact, she died the year after it was published. Um, Two of the icons of Gothic literature. So there's a series of events that are celebrating Gothic literature and the Gothic book. I did notice that. I think actually you're going to be the speaker at that event and that looks very intriguing. I'm also quite intrigued by Criminals, Coppers and Columnists, The Craft of Collecting Crime, which is an extremely alliterative title. So Daniel Wee, who's on secondment from Monash University at the State Library of Victoria this year, is talking about that. The State Library has the most fantastic collection of all sorts of things, including archives about real crime. And so Daniel has done some work during this year and has, has put together this presentation so, that, so he can talk about some of those extraordinary holdings that are present in the State Library. 
Yeah. Now, there's another um, another element here um, that I've just noticed, one of the other events called Material as Metaphor, which is uh, talking about kind of graphic design and the design of books over the years. Because, you know, we do, uh, particularly an event like this, you know, where books become a form of ephemera or, or a, an actual kind of object of, of desire, I guess, mm. in a way, it's probably pretty important to discuss the form as well as the content. Yes, absolutely. And indeed, uh, the... Uh, the ephemeral nature of paper uh, is an important part in the thing that all of us are interested in. It's how you preserve these things, how you look after them, but how you also look and study the way that these have survived and been used as records of our society, our, art- our artistic uh, endeavours, our political endeavours, our cultural endeavours. And so there are several archives around Melbourne in, in all sorts of institutions that are really heavily focused on preserving these uh, paper and printed uh, materials. And so in Rare Book Week, we try to give everybody a chance to go and see the various holdings that are there. And I, I should say, all of our events are free to the public. It's something we're very, very proud about. And if I can also add a, a little plug, if you want to find out more, you go to the rarebookweek.com website and you notice it says rarebookweek.com, not melbournerarebookweek.com, because we were the first organisation in the world to have a Rare Book Week. We've now been copied by a few minor cities like London, New York, <laughs> Los Angeles, San Francisco, mm. etc. But we've got the the name Rare Book Week. Excellent. That's a, that's a wonderful Melbourne first to have. If you just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I'm joined by the director of uh, Melbourne Rare Book Week, uh, Chris Brown, who's going to talk about um, some of the amazing things that are going on over the week that starts on the 29th of this month. Uh, I am just flicking through this uh, program of yours, which actually still has that strong smell of print that for someone who did work in print for years it's a very familiar smell and it's something that immediately kind of takes you back that Mm. this sense of smell does do that and when that's connected with you know an experience of reading um there's something about that isn't it that kind of gets the words into your brain there is there's something about reading a nicely produced piece of work in a nice form uh, most of us who are very keen on on the book and the printed word find it's much more pleasurable and much more enjoyable to read off the printed page than on off the screen, for instance. Although I do read things off the screen, I do keep up with all the, the, the relevant technologies, yet to read uh, Jane Austen in a Jane Austen first edition when you realise you've got a $100,000 book in your hands and you're reading something which is part of the world's cultural heritage, it just sends a thrill down your spine. Absolutely. Uh, um, there's, a, there's a few things in this, um, in this program that, you know, that may surprise people that are also um, important and interesting. Mm. This is Melbourne Rare Book Week and, and that means that sometimes topics that we don't necessarily associate with the past are, are very much included in that and among them are Sappho of Lesbos, which, is a, which looks like a, a collection um, looking at representations of women's sexuality throughout history mm. uh, in Melbourne, which is a, a really fascinating thing. Can you talk through some of the the kind of representations, maybe under-representations that we might be seeing in yes. something like Yes, so this Melbourne is Rare part Book of Week. the uh, Rare Books holding from Monash University. Um, 
And uh, Monash and Melbourne universities, it would be fair to say, have two fabulous collections of rare books in their libraries. This is a Monash presentation, which is uh, looking at some of the representations of female sexuality very much through the eyes of a woman, not through the eyes of men trying to perhaps get some excitement from this, but looking at the way women would want to perhaps be represented and see their sexuality represented. Uh, I'm actually going to go along to that. I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens during that session. Yeah, that looks really fascinating. Are there any other things? Look, I mean, I love that there's um, there's a lot of events here that get younger people involved, that, that you know, the bookmaking kind of workshops and whatnot that are going on in here. But is there anything in particular that you're kind of thrilled to be able to bring out into the light? Not too much light, presumably, because that might wreck the pages, but... Well, we, we like to do things which are a little bit different as well. So one of the uh, two events this year focus on music. we Forget about music uh, being promulgated in the printed form. Music manuscripts are very important. So we've got uh, one event from the Royal Historical Society of Victoria uh, about the retrieval of a music manuscript that was once thought to be lost, which has now been found and has been uh, reworked and is thought to be the only copy of that particular work of music in the world. Uh, it shows you the power then of the printed form of music in saving a piece which otherwise we not, might not be able to hear again. On the other side of that, the more popular end, if you like, uh, we have in Victoria one of the best collections of military-related materials in Australia, second only perhaps to the War Memorial in Canberra at the uh, United Services Institute Library. And they are putting on a, a, a wonderful presentation about the songs of World War One and World War Two, as represented in the very, very... Um, evocative forms that music and songs were printed in both of those periods of time. And I believe they promised there's going to be some performance of some of those songs as well as part of their presentation. But there, it's an interesting collection because as our uh, former servicemen are passing away, their families often give their archival materials to the United Institute's library and it's become a really important depository of everyday people's records of their service during the war, something which is a real part of the people's history. It's a very, very important part of the collection of the history of Victoria. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it, now? Because I'm thinking, you know, throughout history, obviously, books have been those kind of repositories of wisdom, keepers of history, um, the, the kind of, you know, bodies of knowledge. And the fragility of them is, is often something that sort of dominated mm. discussion. Do you think in some way as much as it's wonderful to preserve these great relics of the past and to keep them as these valuable objects that part of our sort of responsibility now is to you know offer them in a form that's more widely easily disseminated a digital form there's there's no doubt that there's certainly room for that but uh you uh, you may not be old enough i'm certainly old enough to still have some floppy disks where are you going to play them now <laughs> The problem with digital technology is it actually all moves too quickly and the media it becomes obsolete remarkably quickly. And there's a lot of concern about, well, if we're going to archive things digitally and electronically, how could we future-proof that? And people who are seriously interested in this uh, topic uh, are still very concerned about this long term because, unfortunately, the 
the the industry, if you like, is driven industrially for profit, not for the long-term archival needs of institutions. And so what was the flavour of the month this month will almost certainly be obsolete in 10 years' time. Yet the book, the printed page, still survives. And indeed, if you look at the sales figures right now, uh, paper book books way outsell the various e-forms of literature which are available. Although five years ago, people thought there was a huge threat to the paper book from the e-readers of the various types. Uh, that seems to have faded now, and the, the people's desire to read from a printed page in their hand seems to have won out in the marketplace. Yeah, I think there's definitely still a desire for them. I think one of the things that I that I do like, I, I guess, about digitisation and the ability of that to disseminate is where, you know, there's the ability to make that more available, yeah. I guess. Um, you know, libraries used to be a province for the wealthy only, I guess, people who had access. Well, I, I would disagree with that. Uh, the, the, there's a huge tradition in the English-speaking world, in, in certainly the UK where I originally come from, but in Australia, of free libraries for the working mm. man. We actually have some of those Mechanics Institute libraries still around in Victoria. There's a wonderful one in Footscray, for instance. Uh, and they were on the back of trying to educate the relatively uneducated and provide reading materials free of charge to the working man and woman. I think that's a really important part of the history of the book, which uh, shouldn't be neglected. And libraries have always been open places for everybody. Uh, it's it's always worries me uh, when libraries and indeed universities are seen as places that perhaps prohibited uh, entry for certain people. It's not the case. Well, it's definitely a hugely important place as well for things like even free access to the internet and, um, you know, the ability to, to still get your hands on books. Mm. One of the things I really do love about this event that you're having is just the fact that there's all these collections that normally wouldn't necessarily be open to the public. Mm. that you are opening to the public, showing these rare books, um, giving mm. everyone a chance to really experience something that, you know, especially rare books that are only held in a few hands. Yes, uh, can I add, uh, the, the, the whole week is culminated by the uh, Australian Antiquarian uh, and Rare Book Fair. This is also free uh, entry. It's at Wilson Hall, the University of Melbourne. Uh, and you could walk in there and see books that some some that you can buy for 5 or 10 or $20, and some with five-figure price tags on them. But it's a chance to see them and to see what, for instance, a number of years ago, one of the British dealers brought out a first edition of Darwin's Origin of Species. And I, I believe that that's, um, there's quite a few stories that might be wound into this about literary luminaries that have um, wandered through Australia's history, including Darwin. Yes, absolutely. I'm actually involved in a presentation about some of the, the famous visitors. There's, there's a, if you go down to what used to be Erskine House in Lawn, you'll see a poem by Kipling saying how wonderful and beautiful Lawn is. Well, he didn't go there. <laughs> he managed to write a poem about it, but he didn't actually go there. But he was in Melbourne. Conan Doyle was in Melbourne, but he didn't speak about Sherlock Holmes. Oh, did he talk about Fergus Hume at all? In no, the he talked, of a he talked about spiritualism. <laughs> he was invited by the Spiritualist Society. And Mark Twain, I hear, also. Mark Twain, uh, here. there's an account, I should actually be reading an account of the Melbourne Cup that Mark Twain wrote. Uh, <laughs> uh, Anthony Trollope came out here for his son's uh, marriage, which was going to take place in a small country town in New South Wales. Trollope travelled all over Australia, wrote about it wildly, 
and managed to neglect going to his own son's wedding, the reason for the trip. So there's all sorts of fascinating stories about some of these people coming to Australia. Darwin, sadly, uh, or unwisely, didn't come to Victoria. He went to New South Wales, Tasmania, and what became Western Australia, but unfortunately didn't touch down in Victoria. Ah, that's such a pity. Such a pity. Um, Chris Brown, this is such a fascinating event. Um, The... Melbourne uh, Rare Book Week um, starts on the 29th of June, finishes on the 8th of July. You can get your hands on a printed copy of the program, which I very much suggest that you do. It still smells very fresh and printy. Or you can visit rarebookweek.com to find out more about it. Uh, Chris, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about this, but we're very quickly running out of time. But I do want to just leave on a note of, is there a rare book that really you know, has grabbed your heart particularly or that you've managed to get your hands on or even just a book that matters to you uh, particularly? People ask me this. So I have a, 12, a collection of 12,000 books. <laughs> uh, my most precious book is probably my first edition of the Jess So Stories by Rudyard Kipling, not because it's the first edition particularly, because it's the book my grandmother used to read to me and it, the book she used to teach me to read. And I can, whenever I read the pages of that book, I still hear her voice in my ears. That's what makes a book valuable to a person. It's a very, very good note to leave on. Uh, Chris Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. Thank you very much, Mel. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.